Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. So, uh, I was going to tell you, I've been chit-chatting with, well, I was until I caught a seven-day fucking ban, but whatever. Uh, I've been chit-chatting with some of our listeners. And like I, they'll find me on Instagram or they'll find us like on the um, podcast page since we don't have a goddamn group page no more. I know, and the podcast page only notifies me here and there. Like I, I don't, I didn't get most of the notifications on the stuff that I did post on there. But yeah, I was talking to this dude named Barry, and he <clears throat> he was talking about like finding the. Um, like how he found the podcast and everything. He's like, oh, no, it was my my wife, Brittany. She's a big fan of yours. And yeah, she... So apparently, young, young, perfect, beautiful podcast listening Brittany is like a big cheerleader. She tells everybody. Oh. She runs around circles getting people to listen. Well, so I guess we have quite a few new podcast... Podcast... Words are fun podcast listeners yes thank you all for tuning in and thank you Brittany. and thank you Brittany. um hopefully 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 uh we have we had a giddy up in our step and i'm really sorry about that guys that was my fault it was mine too really. we made arrangements to rechord and angel looked at the text and did not fully read the text because adhd is a motherfucker and we fucked up the time. I fucked up the time. Well, my friend decided that she was okay with my fuck up and rolled with it. Well, I was... Okay, so it was my... Okay, so? Pro- my problem in the first place, because I did not feel good. And I had to go out of town or something. And I was like, can we just push it off for a couple of days? Oh, God, Jesus. Yeah, so then we changed the time. And we... um. Yeah, change the day. That's what it was. That's where I was going. Shit, I got lost in what I was fucking saying. So we changed the day. Angel came. We changed the time to seven. Tuesday. Angel came at one Tuesday. But at one Tuesday, I was leaving to go do kid things. And at seven, I was waiting and waiting. And I was like, what if she just went home and went to bed? And I still didn't feel good. So I was like, uh, I'm going to deal with this later. I don't even fucking <laughs> care right now because I don't feel good. Well, and then I went out of town. And then you went out of town. And mm-hmm. then we all went out of town. We were all out of town. And so that's why you missed two weeks. One week was probably maybe going to happen anyway. But sorry about that. Uh, week two probably wasn't going to happen. Sorry, guys. You know, like we're not smart. She works a full time job. I work a full time job on top of she play. You know, we do podcasts together and then I have a completely separate full time job. And I'm homeschooling three kids all on top of that, too. B, I know that we're inconsistent (laughs) and people probably hate us for that. Suck my dick. We're trying not to be, but life gets in the way. Hey, man, family, we, we made an agreement, Nikki and I. That family and like our personal health and our personal lives would not like we're not putting podcasts first. That's how people get burned out. That's how people get, you know, that your kids get resentful. You know, your spouse gets resentful about shit like we love the podcast. And one day if the podcast creates income enough for the two of us for this to be our only job outside of nick raising her babies because mine are out the motherfucking house i still got a while <laughs> sorry guys yeah i know i'm like <laughs> still pumped about the empty nester thing i'm um, like dre- i'm dreading it i don't want it what I oh god you're a mom gross <laughs> anyway <clears throat> so we we knew coming into this that we made an agreement that like if we need mental health days if we just don't fucking feel good you know if we're Having to, like, hey, man, I can't because I have to work. I traded schedules to get extra hours or what have you. I have meal prep shit that I got to do. Nikki's trying to fucking homeschool, like, family and life first. I am super excited for what we have coming up. I was, I like, I got my spark back. I just need more time to make this spark happen. But it will happen. 
We have dropped an intro episode, a re-intro episode, so if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. It's not a whole lot, but check it out. It'll explain a lot of shit that's going on. Yay! If you guys want to find us on social media, we do have a podcast page. You can find that, Color Me Dead Podcast, on Facebook. Um, We no longer have a group page. We were recently banned in the USA by Zuckerberg. Um, Sadly, really? Really? Yeah. So, I see I don't get those notifications so, well, either. Well, that's the thing is like, so we we caught a ban and we had it reviewed and they said that they had made a mistake. Then we caught a ban immediately after. We were back for like a couple hours. Before yeah, not even a full day. Yeah. And we caught another ban and we have been under review since then. And this has been oh, I saw weeks. That. So I sent in an inquiry to the Facebook review people and was like, Hey, you know what? We've been on review for like quite some time, blah, blah, blah. I even posted the response from the review team. Um, because they basically were like, Oh, you requested a review of something we deemed against our community standards. Well then you should probably be patient. And I was just like, Ooh, fuck. So I made sure that I posted that so people could see, um, the, Sadly, I don't think we're getting our group back. And I don't either. I don't know what we'll be doing with that. So if you guys want to find us on Instagram, you can. And it's Color Me Dead Podcast. You can follow Nikki at gory underscore Nikki. And you can follow me at Color Me Dead Angel. If you guys want to be ignored on Twitter, you can also do that at Color Me Dead Pod. And then what? What if you want to help us become quadrillionaires then perhaps you should donate to our patreon and you can do that at patreon.com slash color me dead podcast you can also do that through ageofradio.org slash color me dead that you can also if you would like some merch would you like some merch? I you would can like get some, some merch. merch. You can get it by being a Patreon uh, <gasps> subscriber for $20 and above. But if you don't want to do that, that's okay. Because we have a Threadless account. We do. It's colormedeadpod.threadless.com. And there you can get all the things that you can't get. Patreon has mostly Patreon-exclusive items at this point. But there's still a bunch of badass shit over on Threadless. Yeesh. And they have comfy hoodies. Like, I got a hoodie there that I fucking love. They have light hoodies. They have heavy hoodies now. They have, like, they keep adding shit every time I go in there. I have a face mask that we got there. That face mask is my most comfortable one. And sometimes I forget I have it on and it says, color me dead. It's the one that looks like the Crayola sign, but the blood is coming out. Yeah. And I forget that I have it on and people look at me like, wow, you're fucking weird so we also have a p.o box where you can send things it's p.o box 1610 vernal utah Utah, 84078 speaking of post office box we have some really awesome cups in there that a listener sent to us (gasps) so one of our one of my like my instagram homies to the fan box to the fan box oh my god maria um her last name is ussery and I, or I think it's usery because with another S in it, we have people in our neck of the woods with that last name. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so very much. She put together, she saw that I was going to do the meal prep thing, right? And I was really, really excited. Um, and I had put out a logo. I have since fine-tuned the logo to something a little less scary because apparently skull, skulls and skeletons. Skulls are scary. Skulls are scary. But she was like, I'm going to put this on a, on a Tumblr for you. I fucking love my original logo. I love it so fucking much. But the uh, the designer that I'm working with um, on putting my business together and everything was like, you know, less skulls. Like, put it on your Facebook if you must. But Did you take spit it- on them? Psh. I spit at you. Huff. You say no skulls. Um, she's like, you can put pretty ones <laughs> in your house. You can have them on, like, perhaps your Facebook a little. But she was like, not the logo. And she's like, it's very off-putting to people. And I'm like, ugh, whatever. I need to speak with whomever this is. I don't I, like them. I want to speak kidding. to your manager. I need to speak so, to your manager. But anyway, she also was like, well, I want to make something for Nick, too, for Nikki. And she's like, maybe something color me dead. And I'm like, no. And here's why. We own the fuck 
out of some Color Me Dead tumblers because Amanda Perry from LeGras has hooked yes, us she the fuck has. up. So I was like, maybe sharks. Like, yes. I immediately went to, like, Nikki's yeah. greatest phobia. Give her sharks. Yes. They are sitting in our P.O. box right now. Yay. I, I have need to, to go, get go them. there tomorrow. So if you I'm going to pick them up today because okay. I have to go to town. Um, but what I need to do before we start this episode is to trot my hefty ass up the stairs and take a piss before you have to call me Puddles. And if you want to go check out some very exclusive merch that comes from LeGras Creations, you can get that at legrascreations.com slash color dash me dash dead dash shop <laughs> was that fun for you because that was fucking annoying by the time i was done dash dash <laughs> so today what i have in store for you is um a little something i call movies murderers and motherfuckers which is perfect timing because i just went to the stanley hotel yes I'm going to have Kagan. We didn't get to record there. We didn't have fucking time. It's fair. We're going to call him in the next little bit. Mm-hmm. Not today. We're, we're going to call him and we're going to talk about it. Talk about that? I'd like to talk about it. <laughs> so there are often some things that go kind of hand in hand with movies, right? So there's accidents that happen on the set of films. It's not uncommon for somebody to have an accident, get hurt, or die, right? Because... Can you imagine me on the set of a movie? Like, Jesus, I'd break my leg, your leg, the director's leg, everybody fucking broken leg. Everybody broke a leg. You weren't supposed to take that literally. Yeah, please don't. Um, Sometimes those accidents end in death, like Brandon Lee. So for those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, I don't know what fucking rock you've been living under, but he was accidentally hit with a piece of... um, so he was accidentally shot when they thought they were using blanks, but apparently it was like the a remaining round or like a piece of shrapnel from like the prior round Ooh. that they fired. But uh, long story short, the end scene where everybody's supposed to riddle him with bullets, well, they actually riddled him with a bullet um, that subsequently took his life. Which so, riddled him dead. Riddled him dead. So there are, there are some things that happen in movies. That end up in death. Well, they also happen to be the inspiration behind murders as well. So today, let's begin. Movies, murders, and motherfuckers. Motherfuckers. There are plenty of scary things going on in The Exorcist. Over the years, numerous stories have circulated that the production was cursed, plagued by strange accidents and occurrences. The set Oh my god, you fire. did a movie? You did a movie about Satan fucking... And there were strange occurrences? About Satan actually possessing a little girl, and there were strange things that followed? I can't what? imagine how. Hmm. Well, the set caught fire. Yes. Ellen Burstyn suffered a back injury during a stunt. Yes. Multiple cast members, loved ones, died. Like Not during the cast members, the loved ones. Right. So it was like an unusually high number of people's loved ones died during like the filming of that they're like we're not shutting this down for another fucking funeral guys come on seriously it was like my grandma died well my aunt died well my brother died well my and like everybody's people started dying i'm like you motherfuckers aren't very good with like omens are ya no 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 well things got bad enough that a priest was asked to perform an actual exorcism on the production (laughs) Could you imagine that shit? Like, uh, hey, we fucked up and um, we could actually use an honest to God priest to come do some, you know, spirit cleansing. Holy water. Does anybody have some of that? Because we're just going to spritz this bitch with a, a, a fire truck full of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> a little bit. Some of these stories are true. Others may be a bit on the fanciful side. And yet, perhaps the most terrifying thing about The Exorcist is that I'm so excited I can't say it. Is that a real life killer convicted of one slaying, but who may have claimed six additional lives, appears as an extra in the movie? Yes, that's Twilight Zone. That was close enough. That was the only one I could think of. 
<laughs> Looking for a bit of realism, Fredkin used an actual neuropsychiatric surgeon and his team for the shoot. The surgeon's assistant was none other than Paul Bateson. Six years after the release of the film, Bateson would find himself at the center of a very different type of horror story, one which he played the role of the killer. Bateson was born on August 24, 1940, and drew up in... Drew up. <laughs> Where'd you drew up? <laughs> you can try that again? No. <laughs> and grew up in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Son of a metallurgist. He would later suggest that his appearance in The Exorcist was revenge on his father for punishing him as a child by making him stay home from Saturday matinees at the local movie theater and listen to opera on the radio instead. He served in the Army in the early 1960s, where he began drinking heavily out of boredom while stationed in Germany, beginning a lifetime of struggle with alcoholism. I don't want to diss the Army by any means. I see a pattern of all these army people. There's Ronald Gene Simmons. There's that fucking colon guy that I can't ever remember his name. The nurse. Charlie. There's this guy. Army, what are you doing? Um, I mean. You're scaring me. Um, I think I think a lot of. What? Dahmer. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I just. Were they all army? All in the army. I just see a pattern. What is going on I knew on they here? were in the military. I didn't realize they had all come from that branch. Don't quote me. Somebody, somebody could be yelling at me and like telling the real branches, but I really feel like most of them were in the I army. we could... Wow, that should be a trivia question somewhere. We're fucking serial chillers, right? I know. That would, that would have been a great little trivia question. Where are you guys? Greg? <sighs> I... <laughs> they left us. H Hello? That's what they did. They left us. It's you I'm looking for. Yeah. But we'll, we should look that up. Or somebody. Somebody it. do it and fact check us. That it's, that's even better. Um, yeah. After his discharge, he returned to Lansdale and stopped drinking. In 1964, he moved to New York City, where he began a relationship with a man who uh, would later describe himself as not exclusively gay. Which, that's a... Thing. Yeah, like, it's called bisexual. Yeah. That is legitimately in quotes. Mm -hmm. Okay. He is not finger quotes exclusively gay. Sometimes. I, I don't know, man. Uh we call that bisexual. Well, in the seventies the bisexual probably wasn't so well known. determined or like yeah. it maybe it yeah. I don't know when that turn uh like that um Fuck, I don't want to say the wrong thing and be rude, but like that classification of yeah. what you enjoy, I guess, is the nicest, I, a nicest way. I don't even the care if I say it nice. What's the fucking right We're way? We're just trying to say it right. I don't be ignorant. Stop being ignorant. Sorry, dude. Like, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he also said he was involved in music, uh, the arts. Okay. The relationship was marked by heavy drinking, either in the form of cocktails at the Pierre and frequent parties in the couple's home, as well as weekends on Fire Island in the enclave of Cherry, Gro Cherry Grove, both with food cooked by Bateson. Okay. Five years later, Bateson's mother died of a stroke and his younger brother died by suicide. Oh. Bateson trained as a neurological radiologist. Oh, my God. Hold on. I got a, a neurological radiological technician. Say that three times fast. I'd rather not. Uh, beginning <laughs> and began working in that capacity. After the relationship ended in 1973, he moved to Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Borough Park. Uh, he commuted from his he commuted from there to his job at New York Medical uh, New York University Medical Center. Uh, where he was very well liked and respected by his colleagues. In 1972, film director William Friedkin visited the NYUMC while he was preparing to make The Exorcist, the film adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel uh, of the same name. He wanted to view some of the medical procedures that he was considering showing in the, in the movie. He was also looking for a staff who might be willing to be extras in the film, since he would be shooting um, interiors in New York, Although the film itself was in Washington, D.C., Dr. Barton Lane invited the director to watch a cerebral angiography. 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 However you want to put your accents on that word, I'm cool with it. 
At the time, such angio- angiographies, um, now I'm going to make it weird, were performed by puncturing the patient's car- carotid artery in the- Their karate artery! The karate artery. I almost said cartoid. <laughs> wow. In the front of the neck, in order to insert the catheter through which a contrast agent was injected in order to make the patient's blood vessels more visible under x-rays. In the moments between the arterial puncture and the insertion of the catheter, blood freely issued from the tube mouth in rhythm with the patient's heartbeat. Friedkin was sufficiently impressed that he told Lane immediately afterwards that not only did he want to depict the procedure in his film, he wanted Lane to be the one performing it on camera, along with the nurse and Bateson, the technician who recalled Lane in 2018 was the best he ever had. A few months later, Friedkin and his crew returned to shoot the scene, blocking off the part of the hospital's radiology department for two successive weekends. It was one of the first scenes shot during the principal photography in which the character of Reagan, Linda Blair, is examined medically to see if any of the strange behavior that was later found to be the result of a demonic demonic depression, (laughs) (laughs) demonic possession she had been exhibiting (laughs) can be scientifically explained. I'm sorry, because... I went through what felt like demonic depression starting in November, clear till fucking now. Yeah. Demonic depression. We're going to rename it that. You don't have... uh, It's not... You're not manic. You're not seasonal. You're demonic. It's demonic depression. Demonic depression, guys. Lane later recalled hearing that the crew was still trying to trying to figure out how to make Reagan's head spin for a scene later on in the film, like the angiogram, which became one of the film's most remembered moments, obviously. Mm-hmm. In that scene, it is Bateson who speaks out, uh, speaks most of the dialogue, demonstrating the calmer bedside manner and, and another attribute that drew praise from those that he worked with alongside that he had used with many actual child patients. He can be seen in the in the background early as Reagan is being wheeled into the room and then helping her onto the table and attaching the wires and stuff to, to her shoulders. As the film begins um, to show Reagan's face in the tight close-up, alternating takes with the procedure being finished, including her blood spurting into the air and, like, staining his the, her surgical gown. Um, anyway... Friedkin watched, and Bateson's voice is heard off-camera instructing her, warning her that the uh, carotid puncture will hurt and reassuring her as she winces immediately after. So, upon the exorcist release at the end of 1973, the scene became notorious as one that audiences found to be most disturbing. Despite its lack of any supernatural content that that underlies the rest of the, the elements that are in that horror film. Medical professionals, including Lane and others involved in that scene, have also praised its very realistic depiction of the procedure um, and special horse uh, (laughs) historic interest (laughs) since it's no longer performed with a karate artery. The karate with the karate. Around the time The Exorcist was released, Bateson's drinking again increased, adversely affecting his social life. Nobody likes a drunk, he later told the Village Voice in 1975. It affected his job performance, and NYUMC let him go. Bateson sustained himself with odd jobs such as doing light repair work and cleaning in apartments near where he now lived in Greenwich Village, and taking tickets at a theater show, <laughs> at a theater showing pornographic films. He also went to AA meetings and was successful for a while in staying sober. He socialized with other recovering alcoholic gay men and was hoping to start another long-term relationship. However, by 1977, Bateson had begun drinking again, more heavily. He said later that he was drinking at least a quart, or 0.95 liters of vodka every day, which made him passive and curtailed his social life again. After a few shots, I'd shave and get dressed, um, is what he said, intending to go out. But then after the vodka, he says, I quote, or he says, quote, I had no energy left to move. Well, 
yeah. If you drink that much vodka, your energy just kind of goes down. Well, you know, it does have that effect on the body. If I have a shot, I'm like, all right, we're done. <laughs> going to bed now. And then... Night-night. And then we go in night-night. We go into the night-night. Okay, so on those nights where he was able to go out, Bateson uh, patronized leather bars, something he had started doing back in 1970 with a group that styled themselves as bikers. Leather impresses me, he later said in an interview, contrasting with it with, like, the drag and swish. They gay, they give gays a bad name like any extreme group in the world. That was his quote, not mine. On September 14th, 1977, Addison Verrill, a reporter who covered the film industry for Variety, was found dead in his Horatio Street apartment. He had been beaten and stabbed. There were several signs of struggle. Struggle. There were several signs of struggle. However, nothing of value had been taken. Police believe that if the killer's motive had been robbery, he may have been looking for cash or jewelry since those could be taken quickly. There was no evidence of a forced entry. Verrill had likely let his killer into the apartment. There were several empty beer cans and half-full liquor glasses at the scene. Gay activist and journalist Arthur Bell, a friend of Verrill's, wrote an article about the case in The Village Voice, setting it against the larger issue of how murderers of gay men, several of which occurred early in the village, were rarely taken serious by police or reported on by the media since they were seen as the result of sexual encounters gone wrong. Like, oh, well, you were prowling around at one of those leather gay bars, were you? For shame, no wonder you were murdered. Assless chaps. <laughs> Cheek chillers. <laughs> oh, my. Anyway. That's what gotcha. If you would have put pants on. What were you wearing? Assless chaps. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <coughs> excuse me. So that's where, that's where that whole thing would head. The police, Bell wrote, had learned... That Verrill had many, had, well, he had been at the Mine Shaft, a popular, <laughs> the Mine Shaft. I, I like, like it. <laughs> I immediately, I like it. That's my new pickup line. Hey. You want to come to my Mine Shaft? Or should I come to yours? I don't know. <laughs> the oil field might be closing in, but you can drill me anytime. <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Hey. <laughs> Oh, but the mines are staying open. <laughs> oh, goodness. Verrill had been at the mineshaft, a popular leather bar, until 6, 6 a.m., talking to many other patrons. Good what the fuck God. were you doing until 6 a.m.? Like, dude, I don't think I partied that hard past the age of, like, 28, 29. I am not sure that I partied that hard more than once or twice god damn. 6 a.m and i was definitely Shit. young young yeah way young there's no fucking way well according to bell Verrill's friend said that while he did not seek the kink that was abundant at the mine shaft he nevertheless <laughs> liked the attitudes of many of the customers he was oh, considered <laughs> right attitudes <laughs> is that what we call it you ever seen a prettier set of attitudes? I like to go there for the attitudes. <laughs> <laughs> he was considered a regular, holding court at a corner table, not only at the mine shaft, but at the anvil. I can't do with these names. <laughs> another popular leather bar and another popular gay bars of the era. His presence was seen as making those bars popular. Bell ended his article by giving the phone number of the New York Police Department's Homicide Bureau and asking anyone with information to call them. However, eight days after the killing, someone called him, claiming to be the killer. Apparently, to correct Bell's assumption that the killer was a psychopath who tarted, tar he tarts them. He makes them very tart. All right. Who targeted gays said, quote, I like your story and I like your writing, but I'm not a psychopath. Ooh, that would give you the chills a little bit. Right. In a story that ran on The Voice's front page, the caller recounted the events of the night that ended in Beryl's murder. Said, quote, I'm gay and I need money and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> After three months of... I'm gay and I'm alcoholic. Help I know, me, I'm, I'm poor. Help me, I'm poor. <laughs> 
I'm gay and an alcoholic and I'm, hit me, I'm poor. So I need to murder people <laughs> for money. And the other two, ha- really, the other two really have nothing to do with this shit, okay? Just saying. After three months of sobriety, he claimed he had gone out to Badlands, a Christopher Street bar, in the early hours of September 14th, where Verrill, whom he did not know, offered to buy him a beer. A proposition the caller accepted. That beer became several, with the two consuming poppers and cocaine in addition to the drinks. What the hell's a popper? <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, I think I, I'm going to have to Google this. Because I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's Whippets. Oh, okay. <laughs> hold on. Sorry. Let me, like, I'm let that me, guy. I, I'm not sure, dude. Hold on. Oh. <clears throat> what are poppers? Uh, poppers are a common slang term for a range of chemical psychoactive drugs called alkyl nitrates. And in particular, the inhalant drug amyl nitrate. The most common types of poppers inhalant amyl nitrate is can oh do 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 what the f- so the term poppers first <clears throat> excuse me first began being used for the drugs in the 1960s when amyl nitrate was used as a heart medicine when sold in capsules that were cracked or popped to release the chemical. Wow! Although rarely used for heart problems. Today, amyl nitrate has been used to treat cyanide poisoning. Poppers are widely used as recreational drugs, and especially the gay scene. Oh. And taken, and typically, well, shit, like, y'all got your own fucking month. You got your own flag. Y'all now have your own drugs. Your own drugs that you don't share. I know. Shit, man. Like, Not that ditches. I would take them anyway, but goddamn, my feelings are hurt. I know. Me too. <laughs> I totally would have done them. Um, I didn't realize that there were, like, certain drugs that uh, were, like, exclusive for certain scenes. Like, the, no, that's I fucking... I didn't okay. really either. Right. The more you know. So, at 3 a.m., they left the Badlands and went to the mineshaft. Holy fuck with these names. So, they left at 3 a.m. from the Badlands and went to the mineshaft, where they continued their little alcohol and drug consumption binge. The caller told Bell he was impressed by how popular his companion was. He said, I didn't realize he was such a superstar, and I wanted to go home with him. After two hours, they took a taxi to Veril's apartment, something the caller said Veril was reluctant to do because he had to, get up, <clears throat> he had to get up early and go to work on a story the next day. So why? Uh, I'm too old for this. I'm like, then why are you out doing drugs, doing your poppets, and you're drinking? Poppets? Poppers. <laughs> poppers. What's a poppet? I don't know. Actually, I know what a poppet is. It's a part that goes in a valve um, for air compressors in the oil field for natural gas. Oh, I just want you to know that. Yeah, that's what I meant. And I know that because I used to work for a company that does that. Anyway, um, yeah, dude. And the other thing is, don't you know what the rule is? Like, no sleepovers. You don't fucking sleep over with... Especially not on a work day. No, and you don't have sleepovers with people that, like, if you're unsure you want that person to, like, know where you live and what's in your medicine cabinet and shit, like, just don't do that. No sleepovers. No. That's fucking dangerous. Do you want to get murdered? Because that's That's how you you get get murdered. murdered. Well, specifically this... I probably should have taken... I need to um, stop being such a hypocrite. I did that shit all the time when I was younger. I didn't. Because I was a whore! Whore! <laughs> Next time Spencer complains about the trains bringing in the whore, say, I'm already here! God, you, <laughs> you turned a hoe into a housewife. Way to go! <laughs> Crown for Spencer. Doo-doo-doo. I turned a hoe into a housewife. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it's he doesn't seem thing. to complain. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he's upset about it. <laughs> it turned out well in his favor. So... They, uh, so they took, they, so they decide to go. Okay. They go, the two have more alcohol, more cocaine, followed by sex at 730 in the fucking morning. And I'm not opposed to good morning sex. I like morning sex, but God damn, dude, after drinking and everything else, like at 730 in the morning, I don't want to do sex. I don't think they went to sleep. So I don't want to do the sex. the sex. I don't like doing sex at 7.30 in the morning because nobody's brushed their teeth yet. That's why you do it doggy style and nobody has to smell like yeah. one another's breath. Oh, well, all right. Well, moving on. 
I don't do so. The caller, the caller, okay? the caller keeps. He's not the caller anymore. He's the the caller. Said that afterwards, he realized that was as far as Veril had wanted the relationship to go. I needed money, and I hated the rejection, so, still intoxicated, I decided to do something I had never done before. After incapacitating Veril with a frying can... Frying can. Sorry. <laughs> I pushed you, too. Um, that is a frying bush. pan from... <laughs> yeah, bush it! Yeah, yeah, bush it! Uh, a frying pan from the kitchen. The caller recounted he stabbed the journalist with a knife, although he said he chose the wrong part of the chest. You're a freaking technician. You are medically trained technician. Of all the things that you know, but I guess you're high on... Why does the wind always blow when we Every single time. Anyway. Blow, blow, blow your... God damn. Dunnest. No, but he Dunnest. is medically trained. He should know where to I don't fucking know. stab. I, it, well, but it doesn't specify, and I'm sure that I could like find an autopsy report or some photos. <clears throat> so I don't really. I like. I would have to do a lot more investigation to find where he stabbed him that he considered that the wrong place because apparently it wasn't all that wrong because it killed him. So after after the killing, the caller said he took the cash totaling fifty seven dollars. <clears throat> which equivalates the equivalent. Did you hear what I said? The mo- it, it equivalates. <laughs> it equivalates. Bush it. Bush, bush it. it so hard. I'm gonna bush it. Bush it hard. Oh, bush it. I'm gonna bush you. Two hundred and forty modern dollar. Does that help? Yes. All right. So he took fifty-seven dollars and Veril's master charge card, passport, and some clothes. He used the money to buy liquor and was constantly drunk for the entire next day. Bell had confirmed with <clears throat> another source that the man had been seen at a popular bathhouse later that night. The caller offered some information about himself besides that relevant to the understanding of the crime. He claimed to be the son of an orchestra leader, to have a wife in Berlin who did not understand his homosexuality, and a teenage son. He had interest in the arts and wanted to be a dancer when he was younger. Bell noted that he talked about wanting to atone for several crimes which he connected to the conversation by placing on to, uh, he connected to the conversation taking place on Yom Kippur the Jewish day of atonement finger quotes this is a quote but i don't want to give myself up i wouldn't be able to practice again i'd lose my license he declined to tell bell what sort of practice he had a license for suggesting that that would actually identify him mm, der Yes, you're right. It probably would. When Bell contacted the police about the call, they told him that it seemed like first, uh, like the first solid lead in the case. The caller had known about the stolen credit card, a detail the police had not made public, and described a white substance found on the floor of Veril's apartment as Crisco, a shortening uh, frequently used at the time by gay men as a sexual lubricant. I just got dirty. I feel dirty. Could you imagine trying to wash that off? How does that come off? Lots of soup, lots of hot water. Does it clog your drains later? I don't know. Probably. I just, I immediately thought of that scene from the movie The Help. Your husband got scaly feet? Crisco. Bags under your eyes? Crisco. Fried chicken? Crisco. Butthole sex? Crisco. (laughs) I, I mean, like... A little in, gay sex at the mine shaft? Crisco. Crisco. Uh, now that I think about it, like, if you put Crisco on your fingers and sit and rub and rub and yeah. rub and rub and rub and rub and rub, like, nobody's getting raw, nobody's getting chafy, the mm-hmm. shit's not water-based, like, it goes and goes and goes. It really So, quite does. frankly, it's probably a good sexual lubricant, and especially if you are going to be parking big trucks in small garages. Mm-hmm. So, uh, good for them, man. Like, way to find another use for it. Right, but when it when it said white substance, I was like, ha ha, <laughs> cocaine, and then there was <laughs> they were like, was like that took a turn, butt sex. <laughs> yeah, we went from snorting shit to butt sex. <laughs> I'm so confused. Cowboy butt sex. It's my favorite. One of my favorite episodes of South Park. Um, police had not been able to identify it and had not made that uh, public information as well. Hmm. Well. 
can you imagine housewives across the fucking nation finding out that gay men were using Crisco for their sexual deviances and having their oh, cowboy God. butt sex? Dude, there would have been a fucking, like, pearl-clutching, gasping, fainting horde of women just picketing the fucking grocery store. No more Crisco. We can't allow the guys to ruin the Crisco. I don't think we should sell Crisco to anyone that's a homosexual. Uh, they might feed it to their dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> like, bitch, shut the fuck Fucking up. Fucking God. Let him Maybe his... you should use Crisco to, like, give your husband an old-fashioned and calm the fuck down. <laughs> maybe you should let your or husband... Or maybe you should stop closeting yourself and go ahead and admit that you also want to use Crisco. Mm-hmm. When you're... <clears throat> Orgasms are okay, <laughs> and they are good for you to have frequently. You, you can have sex with the same sex. It's fine. Nobody it's, gets pregnant as long as it's consensual. Consi- even if it wasn't consensual, I don't think they would get pregnant if it was the same sex. Just well, saying. No. That wasn't okay. I you- liked the way you worded your sentence so I could twist it for you. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Well, that was so nice. Well, so detectives suspected the caller would call Bell again and went to his apartment to wait with him. At 11 p.m., his phone rang. It was not the original caller, but a man who identified himself as Mitch. He told Bell the killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He told Bell the killer was Paul Bateson. Whom he had gotten to know while the two were drying out at St. Vincent's Hospital a few months earlier. While he believed Bateson was not the man's real name, since he knew the man to have used the pseudonym Johnny. Pseudonym. Pseudonym. A pseudonym? What did I say? Pseudonym. Pseudonym. (laughs) God, I can't say anything. I gotta try to, you know. Pseudonym Johnny Johnson at one point. Johnny Johnson. He said Bateson was an unemployed x-ray technician and that he had called him earlier and confessed to the crime. Mitch asked to meet Bell in person, but the police told Bell not to do so. Instead, they just arrested Bateson at his East 12th Street apartment, where he was lying around drunk. When he was asked if he knew why he was being arrested, he pointed to an open copy of The Voice with Bell's article and indicated that it was that that was probably why. <laughs> probably got something to do with that over there. Over there. He's in New York, but he just went southern-ish. A detective went to the bar and brought Mitch in for questioning as well. He was released after a few hours. Bateson eventually gave police a handwritten confession that was consistent with the with what he had told Bell. Bateson was charged with second-degree murder and detained while awaiting trial. Bell interviewed Bateson in person a month later, visiting him at Rikers Island. <laughs> Rikers Island. Bateson talked generally about his life, something he said he did often, as did other acquaintances of Bateson, whom Bell spoke with. Jail, he said, was helping him to again get sober. His biggest regret about being in custody was missing the new season of the Jeffrey Ballet, which at the time was based in New York. Bell admitted that he too might have taken Bateson up on the offer to go to his apartment if he had met him in a bar or uh, rather than jail. While Bateson avoided talking about the crime he was charged with on the advice that he supposedly took from his attorney, he did talk about the trial. He had pleaded not guilty and expected that to be the verdict after a long trial. A lot of the people will be hurt, parents, friends, then I'll tear up my roots and settle some somewhere else. At the time of Bateson's arrest, police had also been investigating a series of murders of gay men over the previous two years, which they believed to be committed by the same person due to similarities in the killings. The modus operandi. What? I know what that is. I know you do. Six corpses of men had been found dismembered in bags floating in the Hudson River. None of them had ever been identified, but police traced the clothes um, on them to the shops in Greenwich that catered to the gay community. Since the bags reportedly had wording on them connected to NYUMC's uh, neuropsychiatric unit, 
and the dismemberment of the bodies appeared to have been done by somebody who was skilled using a knife or other sharp implement. Implement. <laughs> of you dismemberment. Have, you have a sharp implement. Get, get your dismemberment implement. Investigators began to suggest publicly that Bateson might be a suspect, and they were referred to officially the Cuppy Killings. Circumstances unknown pending police investigation. I like Cuppy. Cuppy. Those are the the, them those Cuppy. One of them Cuppy Killings. Have you have you heard of them cuppy killings there? Those killings were the subject of another interview Bateson gave, although it would not be made public until 2012. Friedkin, who recalled him from both his initial visit to NYUMC and the filming of the angiography for The Exorcist as a nice young man, who stood out due to the earring and studded bracelet he wore neither of which were common accessories for men at the time. <laughs> if you did that nowadays, you'd be like, oh, I remember that guy. He was, remember he's the one with the earring and the bracelet? You'd be like, <laughs> yeah. Dude, dangly earrings are making a fucking comeback and it's blowing my fucking mind. Anyway, he read a long story about the case in the Daily News. Surprised that the gentle Bateson, he recalled, could have ever been accused of murder. Friedkin came to Rikers to talk with him after getting permission from Basin's lawyer. In an interview with Mubi's The Notebook that coincided with the release of his film Killer Joe, Friedkin said that Bateson admittedly killed Verrill, although the director then incorrectly, incorrectly stated that Bateson had dismembered the body and thrown the bagged parts into the river. Bateson said that the prosecutors were offering him a deal whereby if he confessed to the bag murders and some other unsolved killings, he would receive a, short, a shortened sentence. He told Friedkin... Friedkin... Jesus, I can't talk. He told Friedkin... <laughs> He told Friedkin he was not sure if he would accept it. In 2018, an episode of the Hollywood Reporters, It Happened in Hollywood podcast, Friedkin attributed to Bateson a confession to the unsolved murders. As a result of his conversation with Bateson, Friedkin decided it was time to make the film adaptation of New York Times reporter Gerald Walker's 1970 novel, Cruising, about a police officer going undercover in the gay community to catch a serial killer. Life had already imitated art with that new with a New York police department officer, Randy Jurgensen, going undercover in gay bars since he was similar in appearance to the victim of the bag killer. Intrigued by the leather subculture Bateson had told him about, Friedkin knew Matthew Ionello, the mafioso who owned the mine shaft and the other Manhattan gay bars of the era, was able to visit the bar himself. He later, good God, that was a mouthful. (laughs) He later added scenes set there to his film, released in 1980, mixed reviews after heavy protests by the city's gay community during the production. Uh, In the pretrial motions, Bateson, through his attorney, attempted to have his his confession suppressed. He argued that he had been drunk at the time and that the police had not read him his rights. Bateson also denied having made the phone call to Bell, claimed his purported confession was just based on what he had read about the case in The Voice. But you didn't. Because you told on yourself about the Chris Co. and the missing monies. And you were drunk, so you don't remember, right? Didn't he, like, from one sentence say, I was drunk, and then go to something else? Yeah, kind of. You can't do that. Bateson went on trial in early 1979. The state entered both his confession and Bell's voice article into evidence against him. Contrary to his prediction of a long trial in the wake of his arrest, Bateson was convicted after four days. March 5th, 1979. I thought you were going to say 1917. I was like, whoa, time went. Nope, 1979. At Bateson's sentencing a month later, prosecutor William Hoyt called him a psychopath and reiterated his belief that he was responsible for the six unsolved murders. 
While Hoyt admitted there was uh, no direct proof of this, he said that Bateson had confessed to those crimes in a conversation with Richard Ryan, a friend who had testified for the state that the trial that Bateson had confessed the Verrill murder to him. Speaking for himself, Bateson denied any role in the other murders. Justice Morris Goldman sentenced Bateson to 20 years to life in prison, five years less than the minimum Hoyt had asked for. He ultimately found the connection to the other murders too ephemeral to merit any consideration in sentencing Bateson. In a 2018 Esquire article about Bateson, writer Matt Miller was unable to find what evidence might have been as the New York County Court Clerk's Office couldn't find a copy of the trial transcript. Huh. Imagine that. Imagine it. How funny. Funny how that works. Mm -hmm. But nothing Miller had been able to review mentioned, either the bags purportedly being traced to NYUMC or any mention of a deal offered to Bateson if he confessed to the other murder. Bateson ultimately served 24 years and three months of his sentence, becoming eligible for parole in 1997. On the day after his 63rd birthday in August 2003, he was released from Arthur Kill Correctional Facility on Staten Island, according to the online records kept by the State's Department of Corrections and Community. Super, community supervision, his parole was successfully completed in November 2008. That was the last public record of Bateson available as of 2020. Where he is living or even if his, he is alive is not known. Miller attempted to contact Bateson for his Esquire article in 2018 at his last known address in the Long Island village of Freeport, but was unsuccessful as the phone had been disconnected. Emails to different addresses either bounced or were not answered in his podcast interview around the same time. Friedkin said he heard Bateson was living somewhere in upstate New York. A record in the Social Security Death Index shows that Paul F. Bateson, with the same birth date and Social Security number issued in Pennsylvania, died on September 15, 2012. Dun, dun, dun. Tell me a story. I'd like to hear a story. How about a story about a guy that was obsessed with vampirism? Okay. All right. The Queen of the Damned is generally described as a baffling sequel to the far superior interview with a vampire. And it's not that I didn't like The Queen of the Damned. It's just like, it's not interview with a vampire, okay? That, that movie cannot be remade. It cannot be touched. It was perfect. There is, yeah. Quite I've frankly. actually seen that movie. I haven't seen that. I don't think I've seen Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Damned is really good. Um, it was actually Aaliyah's last movie okay, before she that's... died in her infamous plane accident. Yeah. Anyhow, so the, the sequel isn't really like, you know, cult classic by any stretch. It's not exactly a famous movie. Therefore, not really the type of film that somebody would assume triggered the death of anybody. Okay. Right? So... Um, Mr. Alan Menzies. Last name Menzies. Is Can that unfortunate it? as fuck? Mulligan. <laughs> Do over. So, Mr. Alan Menzies, who was 22 at the time of the crime in 2003, murdered 21-year-old Thomas McKendrick in West Lothan Village on December in December and buried him in a shallow grave. The Crown says, and that was the reporting agency, The Crown, Okay. It says that Mr. Menzies murdered Mr. McKendrick at Mr. Menzies' home in Landrig Avenue, Faldhaus. By the by, this is not in the United States, so if you motherfuckers are like, who the hell and where the hell, this is why I believe this happened in Australia. So apparently, Mr. Menzies attacked Mr. McKendrick, striking him repeatedly on the head with a baseball bat or similar instrument, and then struck him about his face and body... With a knife or similar tool. God damn. Uh, Constable Kenneth Gray told the court that on January 18th, he had spotted a forearm and a hand sticking out of a drainage ditch while searching a wooded area northwest of Faldhouse. The court also heard that on January 10th or 11th, police searching Mr. Menzies home found videos including The Queen of the Damned and one of the Vampire Chronicle books, Blood and Gold by Anne Rice. 
on which um, various passages had been like handwritten. Many of them had like misspellings and such. I'm not going to judge there. No. Uh, (laughs) But he had gone through and like circled certain passages and created like little notes for himself. Um, Pages of the book were shown to the jury, including one that had been written. The blood is the life and I have drunk the blood and it shall be mine for I have seen the horror. Could you imagine if somebody got a hold of one of our notebooks? God bless them if they do. It's going to be weird for them, for sure. When I was moving, I found notebooks just full of notes and shit from writing episodes. And I was like, if somebody found this, that would be weird. Yeah, it would be. Mr. Menzies had made a reference to taking the body away in a wheelie bin at 2 a.m. on a Monday, immediately after McKendrick had gone missing. D.C. Lowe added, After the arrest on January 22nd, the accused told him he expected to get 20 to 25 years. Looking at his notes, D.C. Lowe had been driving the police car at the time of the conversation told the court. He said, How do you think things will go today? I'm going to get 20 to 25 for this for doing him with a hammer and with my Bowie knife, but I got his soul. The officer said his colleague, D.C. Marr, who was in the bl- in the back with the accused, cautioned him. But Mr. Menzies went on to tell him, I drank his blood and I ate a bit of his head. There was blood everywhere and I buried him in the woods. Asked how he got the body there, Mr. Menzies allegedly replied, in my wheelie bin. In my wheelie bin? That's the fan box in the wheelie bin. Oh, I've taken my fan box into the wheelie bin. Uh... <laughs> We're fucking stupid. <laughs> D.C. Lowe said after they arrived in Lith- Linlithgow, he noted, da- he noted down. He noted down. They don't jot down. They don't take a note. They noted. I've noted down in me wheelie bin. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like you nutted down in somebody's wheelie bin. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, oh, no. The filth of it all. All right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> I noted in my book that he, uh, they, so he jotted down in his notebook. I'm just going to say it the way that needs to be said because fuck that. Fuck noting it down. <laughs> I don't note it. I noted it in my book. It does. It sounded like I noted. It's, I noted. I can't do that. that. I noted down in my book. He noted in his book, he made a reference to four stab wounds in the near of, uh, to the rear of McKendrick's neck. That's what I remember. And that he used a kitchen knife and pushed it through the throat into the brain. He had buried the weapons far away from the body. Uh, Mr. Menzies also made reference to taking the body away in the wheelie bin on the Monday, immediately after McKendrick had gone missing. DC Lowe added the fuck the officer said that the following day in court appearances, while on the way to the Sauton prison, Mr. Menzies mentioned he would plead guilty if he could get, uh, if he could get car stairs, which the, the, it's a state hospital. Oh, I'm like, um, oh, is that something you get car with a wheelie bin? Is that, uh, I'll need the car stairs for the wheelie bin so that I can nut in my book. Noted, nutted in my book. Uh, car stairs, Winston, car stairs. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Under cross-examination, D.C. Lowe agreed with Mr. McLeod that he was left horror-struck by Mr. Menzies' grotesque and matter-of-fact discussion about the crime. The officer added that the accused had not appeared upset and was softly spoken. A jury unanimously convicted him of the murder and attempting to defeat the ends of justice by burying the victim's body, concealing the clothing and attempting to remove bloodstains. The court heard that he was sent to a secure unit at the age of 14 after stabbing a school pupil and had also attacked a family member with a knife. Those aren't red flags. That's not normal at all. Yeah. He was also sentenced to three years detention for assaulting a 13-year-old boy to uh, his severe injury. He injured with severe injury. Wow. Uh, And that happened in the High Court of Edinburgh in 1960. Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Are we in Scotland? We're not in Australia. We're in fucking Scotland. Not only did he attack 
somebody at the age of 14. He had also assaulted somebody, um, a 13-year-old little kid. So there had been multiple, like, a history of violence, right, with this kid. During his trial for McKendrick's murder, the jury was told that while Menzies suffered from a severe personality disorder, he was not insane. I've heard that before. Sentencing for Menzies, Judge McDonald said, Three psychologists have diagnosed you as a psychopath. In my opinion, you are just evil, violent, and highly dangerous who is not fit for liberty. You subjected Mr. Thomas McKendrick to a savage and merciless attack. You totally lack remorse. Okay. And that was the end of that. Um, okay, but do you want to hear about a real American psycho? I do. I do want to. That movie fucked me up a little bit. Yeah. I watched it before I was started to be brave. I watched it in the peak of my sissiness. And I don't like it. It scared the shit out of me. Everybody fell asleep around me. And so I'm just sitting there. We were and we weren't at home, so I couldn't turn it off. We were at Bo's house. And everybody else fell asleep. And I think Clint was like laying on me and I couldn't move. And Bo was asleep and Brittany was asleep. And I'm like, I don't like it. But I just kept watching it anyway. It scared the shit out of me. Now I kinda wanna watch it again. Anyway, Michael Hernandez was a promising young student in Florida. Until he decided he wanted to become a serial killer and would start with a classmate. His biggest idol was Bateman from American Psycho, and sadly, this is the one he chose to imitate. Don't do that. Michael Hernandez led Andre Martin and fellow schoolmate Jamie Goff to into the bathroom at Southwood Middle School, then trying to lure his two friends into the handicap stall. Martin balked. Golf didn't. The school bell rang. Hernandez, a stickler for timeliness, backed off, and the trio headed for class. <laughs> I was going to murder you, but the bell rang. Uh, so I didn't want to be late for class after I smurdered you. So you just have to wait till next time. Get, meet me back here after class? Yeah. The next morning around the same day, Golf and Hernandez, both 14, entered the same bathroom stall. There, Hernandez overpowered the smaller teen slit his throat, and killed him. This teen killer would soon be arrested, and his story fell apart quickly. Hernandez would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Originally sentenced to life after his trial in 2008, Hernandez was granted a new sentencing after the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 banned automatic life terms without the possibility of parole for minors convicted of murder. By the way, uh, this mofucker looks suspiciously like Big Ed Kemper. That's, I don't like it. Hernandez was being tried as an adult in the first degree murder of Jamie Goff, who was 14. Police say Hernandez admitted to killing Goff at Southwood Middle School on February 3rd of 2004, but didn't explain why. 41 pages of Hernandez's journal were released by prosecutors after a public records request. The journal had been allegedly misconstrued by news reporters who painted a damaging portrait of Hernandez before the trial had started. It was speculated that when Hernandez scrawled the message, will be was scrawled the message quote will become a serial killer unquote. On the bottom of a printout on mass murders, the teen was not making a statement, but merely copying the last entry on the page that had not printed out. He was not making a statement, but merely copying the last entry on the page that had not printed out. But others in the journal indicate Hernandez was fascinated with the violence, and several pages appear to be unfinished lists with headings such as body count and what was done. He recorded his violent obsessions, fixations on prayer, and, de- and detailed plans for self-improvement, all inside this journal. Inside the journal was another fixation on cults, because why not? Hernandez's parents testified that he was insane way before the murder actually occurred. This is only one other case of life imitating art. Although it can be argued that the movie is to blame, Hernandez was a troubled kid. This means he probably would have killed someone or done something of the sort regardless of the film. You don't say. I like that they're like, his parents said that he was crazy long before the murder. Well, fucking, 
just so you know, that's your turn to do something. That's when it's your time to do something. You're the parent. If you know he's a psychopath, let's go get him some help. Well, that's the really unfortunate thing, and I um, I see it a lot, actually, in my line of work. Oh, I could imagine. Uh, where parents live in this weird, wonky, like, you know your fucking kid's not right, but you don't want your kid to be fucking not all right, so you kind of just roll with it, and you don't say anything, and you just let them be not all right until they do fucked up shit. Um, not me. I would be <clears> like, dude, there's something not right with this one. Let's fix it. Fucking, it's crazy. So, you know, maybe in the meantime, like, if your kid acts like a creep, get him some help. Don't yeah. join a cult. You're not a vampire. And, uh, stay out, out of chalk, chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye. You can join our cult, though. You don't, yeah, you deaf should. Because mine's mo better. Mm. Mm-hmm. Superior. <laughs> 